Hi everyone, how are you doing? My name's Gareth Duffin and welcome to Know Your Shift, a podcast where we explore the challenges, opportunities and impact of change in all of our lives. Change can be unsettling and often difficult to navigate, but it's also a part of growth and progress. On this show, we'll be talking to experts, business leaders and everyday people about their experiences with change and how they've overcome obstacles to embrace it. Whether you're looking for inspiration, practical tips or just a fresh perspective on change, we get actionable advice. So let's dive into the world of change, embrace the unknown and help you to change your direction. Hi, Eddie. Nice to see you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Good. Well, we always start with the first, with the same question at the start. So um, as we, we always do, we talk about change. Um, that's our main theme. So what is the hardest change that um, that has happened to you in your life? Um, yeah, it's probably, you know, it's a good question, actually. Um, looking, looking back at um, essentially in my early 20s, at the time, I was a chef uh, working in a sort of country pub out in Essex somewhere. Um, and I've done that really since school. So I sort of finished school when I was 16 and really into sort of cooking uh, and wanted to do that as, as a sort of lifestyle. Um, and I, I sort of went into catering, sort of worked my way up, you know, sort of got, got qualified while I was working. And then after a couple of years, realized that it's just really hard like incredibly hard work you know you're working sort of 14 hour 15 hour days a lot of the time or you know you split shifts you know you can start at six in the morning um finish you know at two and then come back at six till midnight and stuff like that um and i just wasn't really enjoying it very much uh but when you're sort of in that position you know you're sort of quite young as well and you're earning enough money to sort of get by it's sort of quite hard to you're in a bit of a tunnel and it's sort of quite hard to to make that change and decide to do something else especially when you know the social part of it was quite good so it's you know very much a work hard party hard sort of uh, environment um, which is, is always good fun um but i realized that it just wasn't sustainable um long term so you look at people in the industry you know in their sort of 30s 40s 50s and to see a lot of people that were, you, you know, sort of good people, but they were just completely worn down. Uh, and you have to, you know, when, when you're sort of looking at that, you're just thinking, oh my God, like, do I, do I want to be 35, 40 and, and just be, you know, um, ex- exhausted all the time and, um, you, you know, sort of doing the same thing I'm, I'm really doing now. It's something that I was really passionate about as well and I really enjoyed doing, uh, but I just had to make a decision to, really move on so um you know um, went back to college uh, and decided that i was just going to do something completely different which uh, it turned out never really happened but at the time it was a big change in my lifestyle you know i got gone from this sort of working environment uh lots of you know social good friends you know working hard to you know sort of going back into you know essentially i had to like learn how to go back to school uh, and then went to university and, and sort of, yeah, sort of restarted my career from there. So, yeah, so when I was 
basically a full sort of career reset when I was 22. I don't think people really who haven't worked in hospitality now, funnily enough, when I was younger, I always wanted to be a chef. I just wasn't a very good cook. Um, uh, and I ended up in the hospitality industry industry myself, but I ended up front of house. So I'm secretly jealous of all the chefs because they were always always looking like they were well working the hardest, but also also the most fun. Um, yeah. I think. Do you think looking back at that time as well, being you know working as hard as you were, it, it when you're working that much, do you think it's harder to sort of think about what you can do next and change or you know is it is it the opposite where you can just think I, I can't do this anymore therefore I'm focused and I'm dedicated to to finding something else to do I think it's probably different for everyone but for me I, I would say it was the, the former um because you're sort of in the moment and you're you're living it and you, when you're in sort of that lifestyle and you know it's the same for lots of roles and I think it depends on people's personality as well. You hear about sort of workaholics and you know people, you know, sort of people liking to be in control. But, but certainly when you're working that hard, you just feel like you're sort of stuck in the moment. And it's um, you know, it's something that's difficult to peel away from, I think. Um, when you look at you know, especially when you're you're a bit younger, it's very difficult to look at what you're gonna be doing in 15, 20 years' time with any sort of clarity. And probably not so much when you're younger as well, you know, have conversations with people now, you know, your, your peers, sort of same age, people the same age as you, you might have grown up with them or you might be sort of working with them now and they want to do something completely different, but they're in that sort of mindset where they've got financial stability. You might have a mortgage or kids and you don't want to move away from what you're doing because essentially it's, it's, it's paying the bills at the end of the month and you have that feeling of, well, if I go into something different, you know, am I going to have to take a huge pay cut? Am I going to have to start again? And I think that people probably don't put enough faith in themselves uh, to, to sort of take that jump and really sort of, um, you, you know, really go with it. When I when I moved into student accommodation, so, you know, when I sort of finished uni, I, I sort of came out of uni in um, the, the recession uh, after sort of 2008. Um, and I, so I carried on sort of working in hospitality for a while went on to do a graduate scheme or program and then I, I I sort of did that for a few years and then I moved into student accommodation took the plunge really and I you know I sort of took quite a big pay cut to move into student accommodation uh, and I, at the time I just had my first my first son you know he was probably only about six months old so it's quite a precarious sort of financial time as well but I think because I'd already moved from um you know, what, what I already sort of had a big change in my life before and I, I knew that I could do it. Uh, I was willing to take that risk. And, you know, I think people, you know, sort of probably, especially when you get a bit older, people are really scared of taking risks and scared of change. And sometimes until you make that plunge, you, you don't know it's going to be all right. Uh, and sometimes it's probably not going to be all right, is it? But in, until you do it, you don't know. And I think um, I think you're absolutely right. And I think does that so? Well, a couple of questions really. Would you have approached any one of those changes any differently with the benefit of hindsight? Obviously, um, and you sound like those changes have been really positive. Like, does that mean you you now approach 
you know have those experiences with positive changes led you to to take more risks yeah yeah it's a good, good question um i think for moving the sort of first thing we spoke about um sort of moving out of hospitality and also back of house certainly no because i think that working in that environment for the length of time it did sort of it sort of helped shape my values uh you know very much gives you the idea that you know if 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 you work hard good things will come uh and that you know your output is only probably going to be as good as your input a lot of the time so you know that i really learned to work hard in, in that environment and I, I think that's really sort of done me well in, in life because it's you know, I, I sort of go into everything with the opinion that actually it's not going to be easy and to, to get anything good out you know you've got to put put everything in so no i mean i think moving into when i moved into pbsa i, I sort of wish i'd done it a bit earlier um you know you sort of one of those ones where you're working in an environment and you're getting calls from recruiters or before linkedin was like massive and you but you, you know when you're um you're getting approached by people um you're sort of a bit hesitant aren't you sometimes and actually i sort of wish i'd made that change a bit earlier uh, but I sort of like to, you know, have that sort of philosophy where you think, well, things sort of happen for a reason, don't they? So yeah, yeah. probably probably wouldn't, uh, yeah, probably wouldn't approach it any different. So what was the second part of that question? I guess um, you know, has do you, do you now feel more positive about change and then yeah, yeah. willing to take more risks? Yeah, de- definitely. Um, and you know, sort of on a a personal sort of level went through um you know my last my last role went for a bit of a we went for a bit of a restructure as well big sort of change in my life then and when you sort of make these changes and you, you especially when you're making the decisions yourself um i think it enshrines a bit of an attitude in you that you can come out of things positively and as i said earlier you know if, if you if you work hard and you really put things in then you're you're in charge of your own destiny, really. It's, you have the power to, to to come out of things in the way you want to. I think that I think that one, like a lot of people, don't have that confidence. Um, two, as I said, people aren't willing to take those risks, and you know, it, it's a shame sometimes that, that that you're not. And it's taken me a while to get to this point, definitely. Um, you know, I am where I am in my sort of career and life, and it's taken a while to get there. And if, if you asked me this ten years ago, I probably wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had the same answer uh, but yeah it's um, it's just about experience isn't it and I always say to people you know when, when you talk to people who are who do want to change careers and they do want to do something different you know just sort of say to people just just do it you know what what's the what's the worst that can happen you know the, the job market at the moment is in, in the UK certainly is really buoyant um, and at worst you can go back to doing what you were doing before um, so ha- have a go yeah, I think that's a really good point I think it's you know thinking about all is not lost if you know you make a change that doesn't work out you were still hopefully really good at what you were doing at yeah. the time before you made the change I think it's really interesting talking to um, you know having spent so many years in in student accommodation myself is um, one everyone talks about how they sort of ended up in 
in the career in student accommodation yeah. but but for everyone it seems to be a real positive move um yeah. you know i know we're, we're seeing some people now looking at you know roles in build to rent or you know sort of similar similarly skilled roles um but yeah everybody that's joined the industry sort of you know see from other careers particularly you know i know a lot of hospitality uh professionals have moved into student accommodation for very similar reasons to yourself around work life work life and uh that the amount of hours you do i guess um which leads me nicely on to talking about one of my favorite subjects which is student accommodation um so what do you see are the biggest changes happening in the sector at the moment um yeah there's a few um to start with there's going to be a huge focus on building safety um fire um life safety this year um you know the building safety acts uh gained royal assent at the moment uh was gaining was gained just gained royal assent um and there's going to be you know a lot stricter requirements on building owners to sort of understand what's in their buildings and we're going to see a lot much more strict assessment on, on the properties themselves um which is going to see investment that might have gone into sort of people pick, purchasing new properties um you know that there's going to be a lot of focus going into spending the money re reactively fit, refitting buildings to to make sure they're sort of up to standard um away from that you know that the, the market has really changed in the last sort of couple of years since covid um you know we know that the, there's sort of a huge growth in student numbers at the moment um that most markets are undersupplied uh, there's sort of more demand than supply um and even markets that traditionally were quite difficult to fill historically uh sort of really up and coming again uh, i always sort of talk about kingston as the example um you look at kingston five years ago you know nobody would want to buy property there uh, you know most buildings were 60 70 percent full uh, if anyone was telling you they're 100 percent full they're, they're probably lying to you um and now you know the the, the the demand in the market you know the university's really sort of picked up you know we've got increase in international students um you've got increasing the number of 18 year olds which we which we know what the trends are going to be and it's widely known in the industry but because the market there was that oversupply was there people really haven't been building that uh, so now the, the demand is huge and the supply is you know sort of not where it needs to be which is it's the same for lots of markets so um at the same time you know we've had a lot of um decrease in hmos so places like bryce and kingston not granting hmo licenses or extensions on hmos uh, which again has meant um more demand than supply uh so i think we're going to see challenges with um with, with students being able to to find accommodation basically in, in lots of markets uh universities are going to have to be cleverer uh speaking to pbsa providers about sort of what they want and when they want it and not to say that they're not already you know most of the universities that we deal with are you know they're, they're, they're really switched on they, they know what they need um but you know there are some that are probably a bit slower to react uh and you know they're, they're the ones that you know 
there just needs to be a bit of a, a change in, in the, the way that the sort of the relationship between PBSA and universities um, interact. Because as I said, you know, there's lots of universities that are really switched on and have a really good relationship with PBSA, but there's lots that where the relationship is quite ad hoc based on needs. And I think that that's going to be something that we're going to see changing significantly over the next couple of years. We're already starting to work, especially in London, with you know sort of smaller institutions that we probably wouldn't have worked with in the past. Uh, again, because their sort of numbers are up. So, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a really interesting time actually. Um, I think the other thing is that you, know, you sort of mentioned sort of co living and BTR. I think that a lot of students because they're not going to be able to find places in. Uh, PBSA specifically, you know, that there are students who will be looking in, you know, that there are students that are going to be living in co-living buildings, um, you know, just sort of anywhere to find somewhere to live. And so I think, you know, as an industry, it's going to be something that we're going to have to react to. It's just going to be an interesting couple of years ahead. Some uh, some really interesting things that you said there that I'll, uh, I'll come back to. But one question that's sticking in my mind from from listening to what you're saying around everything there is what do you think is going to happen at clearing this year we've seen demand seems to be front loading in the market you know i see operators uh telling us all on on linkedin and wherever how they're you know some people 10 percent ahead year on year in terms of occupancy for september so if uh doing a bit of crystal ball gazing what, what what do you think is going to happen with the market? And, you know, if you're a student that is possibly considering clearing, would you be worried about getting accommodation this year? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, the, you know, a lot of the universities guarantee first-year places uh, for students and they'll guarantee first-year places for students that come through clearing as part of their offer as well. I think a lot of the university has been, universities have been really smart uh, you know, we, we've worked with a few few universities that have, you know, sort of up their numbers in anticipation for clearing. And, you know, that they'll have clearing places specifically set aside with, with uh, PBSA providers on options. Um, but I do think that in a lot of markets, there's, you know, there's, there's a supply and demand problem, isn't there? If there's not enough supply, then there are going to be students that are going to go into clearing and not have places. Um you know, you look at Glasgow University last year and you just need to look at the, you know, the, the stories on the news um, where, you know, students went through clearing and they didn't get places. Um, so and it's not anything sort of confidential. It's sort of stuff you see on, you know, BBC News. Um, um, you look at the rush for accommodation in places like Durham, uh, where you've got sort of news stories of people queuing up on, on the streets, basically outside letting agents to get, to get rooms and rooms that, unless the universities have um, specifically earmarked nominations for those clearing students, then in, in markets like that, students aren't going to be able to get rooms at uh, this late stage because all, all of the rooms in the markets we've booked up already. So it's going to be it's going to be a really challenging year. I think we'll see more movement in clearing because of that. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how you know the universities work with clearing whether you know that they've sort of filled up their allocations earlier and whether clearing is going to be a, a bigger thing for the universities as it has been traditionally this year so going back to some of you said around particularly the example you used around kingston and how you know the demand you know in, in recent even in recent times has been has been low 
uh, and now it's you know buoyant. Um, you, I'm assuming throughout your portfolio, you work with different investors, not just one. Yeah, how, absolutely. How, um, you know, how are investors and, and providers such as yourself looking at that data and is it available to sort of predict these future trends? Because it does feel like, you know, all of a sudden we lurch into a market hopefully then doesn't become oversupplied like we've seen some markets lurch into yeah. and, then, and, then, and then go into the next one you know it used to be exeter and birmingham uh now obviously kingston's upcoming um so where's that data coming from and and our investors and providers looking at it trying to predict the next you know and how do they go about that predicting the next buoyant market yeah, so there is definitely data available. There's some really good reports from um, like Cushman's, Savills, uh, who will look at, you know, sort of each individual market, um, what's in planning, sort of what's in the pipeline. And, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll have sort of off-market information as well. You know, who's got what land. Uh, so, yeah, there's some really interesting numbers out there. As well as, um, you know, some of the agents as well now, um, are doing their own sort of uh, market analysis uh, and predicting future numbers. Um, so that there's lots of places we can get that information from. Um, obviously, market experience is really important as well. So, you know, looking at your, your own experience in the market, where it's growing, you know, where your year-on-year data is from the, the last few years, uh, it's important. And, you know, as, as Fatty said on the, the last podcast, you have to have a strategy. Uh, and, you know, you have to set your strategy out you know, in advance, you know, we, we see, you know, for, for investors that have that strategy, you know, we, we try and work with our clients to have sort of, you know, that, that sort of strategy in advance. And for, for those properties, you know, you can really sort of stretch rents uh, through the year. Um, it's, it's a, you do see it sort of poorly ex, uh, executed in some places, especially what I guess what we call dynamic pricing, but really like technically it's tiered pricing. Um, you know, I've seen examples recently of a property um, where they might have a gold studio um, that they've sort of been selling well and there's been sort of big dynamic uplifts on it, but then it's now £15 or £20 a week more expensive than the platinum studio because they're sort of reacting, that, you know, they might be like, oh, well, this studio is selling really well, we'll just, we'll just had £10 a week on or £15 a week on, but there's no thought to, you know, the rest of the... The, the rooms in that building and then you have sort of anomaly where you've got one room which might be five square meters smaller uh, and have um you know less sort of facilities in the room that, that might be then more expensive than a, a more premium product so you know i think i think the way sort of investors are looking at things is you know it's two twofold really it's everyone wants to be in that new market don't they that, that's sort of the next booming market and i think you know, investors will pay for that information and also sort of look in the market and, and, and see what there is as well, uh, based on sort of how the universities are doing, where their numbers are, um, you, you know, sort of if, if you're sort of looking at those sort of signs of uptick, uh, you know, where the university's research rankings are and things like that, definitely. Um, you know, it used to be that, I guess, in the olden days of PBSA, big sort of providers looked at, you know, sort of the traditional two university town, um, you know, one one good university and one probably, you know, sort of mid-tier university. You'd get clientele from both uh, universities. 
and you know you'd build somewhere in the center of town or, or near the campus uh but now you know there's pvsa in, in practically every market um you look at places like you know norwich that's an emerging market now there's sort of quite a few buildings there and there's more coming online this year um which you know sort of four or five years ago didn't really have any pvsa in at all um canterbury another sort of you know sort of up and coming market there um and I think investors want to be sort of tuned into the, the next big place where, you know, that there is that, that that opportunity to really, you know, put a great product in and, and you know, get that return on investment. Um, I think it's Kingston's, you know, I sort of keep coming back to it, but it's a really interesting example because it's one where I think people, you know, investors sort of stop looking at it because of the, the oversupply there. And you, you sort of see that these things probably come in cycles, you know, it, from getting land and getting planning permission to building a building, you're probably looking at a three or four year span anyway. Then the sort of building, you know, going up and going through its mobilization phase and filling up. Um, then th those markets sort of probably get forgotten about a bit. Uh, you, they, they sort of become bad markets. And then it will take three or four years, you know, with, with Kingston as an example, if people are sort of savvy enough to look at that market again. Um, it's now going to take sort of three or four years for people to get land, get planning, and, and get new get new kit built on that. So, um, you know, the, the smart investors will be looking at probably going back and looking at some of the old, old markets that you know are sort of starting to perform well. But it's about where, where's that market going to be in four years' time? Where's it going to be in five years' time? By the time I get my my uh, my new building built on it, really. That makes sense, and I guess. Um... So, as you were saying earlier about how um, you know the the Building Safety Act is leading investors to um, having to redistribute capital into um, upgrading their existing stock, which is affecting the pipeline. Um, on the flip side of that, I guess is is affordability in rents. You know, I've read this week, you know, about um, the controversy around the, the Manchester student rent strike. Yeah, um, and you know. Uh, you know, I've previously worked for providers the same. Uh, you know, the, everybody wants to provide good quality buildings that are safe. But as yeah, we know, with the cost of, of energy and materials, these these buildings are becoming more expensive to maintain, to well, to build and maintain. How do we balance that against the affordability? And is that is that a provider's problem to solve or is it you know sort of you know more around government where where do you see the sort of you know or is it more of a joined up approach to, to sort of tackling that affordability problem for students and accommodation yeah um so i think first of all um i think student accommodation purpose-built student accommodation provides a really good solution for students um that generally is fairly affordable when you look at include inclusive bills um you know that there's sort of no living costs um and i think that sometimes pbsa gets uh beaten with a bit of a stick that it, it doesn't deserve to you know we you know that this industry um takes students gives them somewhere as you said you know safe to live you know comfortable the secure all-inclusive rents and it also is putting housing stock back into the open market uh which, which is desperately needed at the moment um you know 
I think there's a really good range of student accommodation options in most markets. Um, you, you know, you, you'll have some some properties that, you know, sort of the, the base level of uh, pricing in the market, you know, will be affordable on a, on a student loan. And right up to, you know, like all singing, all dancing studios that, you know, probably are aimed at your sort of international students on, you, you know, sort of a significant, um, you know, they might be on sort of a government grant or sort of being funded through, you know, parents or, or things like that. So I think that there's a really good range. And I think that we provide a really good solution for students. Um, that said, um, you, you know, you do make a valid point that uh, everything is being stretched for everyone at the moment. Um, and, you know, we also need to balance the, the, the point of providing an affordable, safe product to students with, you know, re returning, you know, returning investment for, you know, the, the people that are putting the money in. Um, I think that it's sometimes forgotten that a lot of the money that, that's put into the sector to, to build these buildings, you know, to build, these buildings aren't cheap to build. You know, you're looking, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 million pounds to build some of these buildings. Um, and, you know, that, that money is coming from, you know, pension funds and things like that, which is then providing income to, you know, um, it, it is providing income for people in the future. So, you know, you, know, you, you might have a, you know, a council pension fund that owns, you know, a building. And that's providing income for the, the people that have worked in, in the council for years. So, you know, it's really important that, that we get that balance and that investment keeps coming in. Um, and I think that that is sometimes forgotten when people see sort of a headline rate of, sort of they might say, oh, £250 a week, how is that affordable? But, you, you know, we're, we're providing a product for people and it has to also there has to be a return for investors otherwise there's no point in that, that that product wouldn't exist i do think that the government um and you know local authorities need to work more closely with providers uh you know at the moment um we you know that there's work done with the british property federation you know i, I work for fresh and you know we you know our, our sort of md and ceo sit on the, the board of the british property federation and you know we, we sort of have those conversations with um you know sort of government agencies um you know in, in london we work with the gla on sort of affordability scales and you know that there is a lot of pushback from um parts of you know sort of london boroughs and the gla on, on making accommodation more affordable especially around sort of um you know percentage of um you, you know what what percent of uh sort of maintenance loan dictates affordability um so there is that pushback and i think that a lot of the time or maybe not a lot of the time but sometimes we're sort of seen by local authorities and the government as cash cows uh and that you know it's about that they obviously want to get the best deal for students we want the best for students as well so everyone everyone wants the same thing it's just there's sometimes challenges on what the best thing for one person is not the best thing for other 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 people. But yeah, to, to answer your question, I do think that there needs to be, you know, we there needs to be more work done, and we need to work closer with, you know, the, the PBSA sector needs to work more closely with the uh, HE sector, and we both need to work more closely with the government and have a joined up solution. Do you think? Um, I mean thinking about about how the market governs itself 
you know, I think there's a lack of understanding at government level around around the PBSA market. And therefore, we as an industry, I say we, but we as an industry rely on sort of Unipol, UUK, yeah. to, to, to sort of bring that together. Um, do you think that's perhaps a symptom of us having separate governing bodies? And how do we how do we engage all of those parties? You know, do Unipol have a role to play in that? Is there is there other than you know British Property Federation as well? Like how do we bring those those parties together, not just on a local basis? You know, I read in the last couple of weeks about uh, Nottingham's joined up strategy around um, student housing. So they brought together both universities, they brought together the council, the police, everything else. And I've got my own thoughts on on, on the output of that strategy. But how, how are we going to get that done on a national level? Whereas at the moment, it seems to be, you know, providers are off doing their own thing, which is right, because there's no there's a lack of regulation or a lack of support on a national level for the industry. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, Unipol and Anuk do a good job with um, the, the guidelines they put into place. Uh, we certainly seen, um, you know, although, you know, it's, it's voluntary and there is a lack of regulation, we've seen a lot of change come into student accommodation over the last 10 years because of Unipol's guidelines. And so um, things like the inquiry to late deliveries has um, really changed the, the way that, that the industry reacts to late deliveries and, and what the students get back from a late delivery. Uh, certainly that the work that Unipol has done mean that students are certainly, they're looked after a lot more when there's a late delivery, you know, they're financially compensated, you know, they can leave their leases. And, you know, Anna have done a lot of work around, um, you know, sort of disability, um, allowances for students as well so you know you'll know that you know we, we're not allowed to the, the in the industry if you're signed up to Unipol um if, if somebody has a sort of disability and they, they use an accessible room we can we only charge the sort of the base rate for that room in the building so there, there has been a lot of positive change that's come from that regulation however as you said that regulation is only voluntary um, you don't have to be a member of ANIC or Unipol or UK. Um, and, you know, perhaps the answer is to have um, compulsory regulation for the industry that, you, you know, that providers, if they want to, you know, provide uh, an accommodation service for a university, they, they must be registered with one of those branches. Uh, certainly, you know, in the old days, um, HMO providers used to have to be registered with the university and somebody from the university would come around and check check the houses individually. And if they didn't pass, they weren't allowed to market to those university students. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that, that that's the way it should be going. Uh, and it definitely requires a, a bit more thought. But um, I'd like to think that on a whole, that, you know, the, 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 the providers that are part of um, you, Unipol and places like that, um, you know, are doing a good job and they are upholding those standards. Um, 
But yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a fragmented market, isn't it? And, you know, we all work with universities with NOMS and, and they might, we, we, we have sort of annex standards in, in our properties, but they might be with the UK. So it's a different set of regulations. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure what, what the answer is. Um, but I think that, you know, when you look at the, the, the way that things are going in Wales and Scotland, um, you know, in, in Scotland, you, know, you have to have, you know, you have to have compulsory, there's compulsory training now to be able to let rooms. Uh, and so it's sort of same in Wales. Um, I think that we, we are going to see that in England uh, in the next couple of years, uh, whether as providers we like it or not, that there's going to be more regulation. Um, so I think um, we as an industry just need to make sure that we're sort of lobbying the right people to sort of shape that legislation and to shape what it looks like when it does come into into force. Yeah, and touching on what you said about um, you know working in London, working the GLA, how do you see the London market playing out over the next couple of years? You know, we've seen you know talking to one university in the last few months around. Um, you know, they've started to explore the possibility of releasing some of their assets to PBSA providers um, because they want to focus more on teaching and research rather than, you know, they actually think that PBSA providers can do uh, probably a better job of it in certain circumstances. So in terms of, you know, we know that the increasing the supply of accommodation in London is going to be tough for a number of reasons, availability of land, regulation, um, politics. How do you see, you know, what is our greatest market in the UK? How do you see that playing out over the next two to three yeah, years? Yeah, again, really, really good question there. I mean, one, um, there, there's just not going to be enough beds in the market for the growth of the market in the next sort of three, five, ten years. And because of the, the short-termism that, that sort of existed with current planning policy, um, certainly in the short term, we're not going to be able to satisfy the demand. Um, so, you know, we, we've got challenges there. I think to your point about the universities, yes, I've sort of heard that some universities do want to sort of move away from managing their the, the sort of PBSA stock and leave that to private providers, but... I think for the a lot of the, the bigger providers, you know, that it's so the, the the living experience so sort of intrinsically linked to the sort of the, the study experience as well that they want to keep doing it themselves. Um, you know, we, we work with some big private, you know, we work with some big HE providers in London and you know they they have their own residence managers in place and you know that they, they do a good job of, you know, that they have really good student experience programs. Um, you know, their sort of individual student experience programs are really at the, at the accommodation level or at the heart of, of what they do. And, you know, that they rely on that to bring students in, um, you know, to the, to the universities. You know, if, you, if you've got a university where, you know, people are really happy living there, you know, you can sell that to students. You know, it's like, come and live here. We'll give you a great course, but also we'll give you a great living experience. Um, so I do think that, universities are you know it's in london are going to continue to you know want to have their own people in place and, and manage their own properties that said um you know that there is only a certain amount of space for that as well um especially some of the smaller universities who are newer to the market 
um, they're going to need our experience in, in PBSA uh, to be able to provide the bed numbers, um, you, you know, sort of for the for the, the future cohorts coming in. Um, what, what's an interesting point is, you know, around sort of planning and the London plan, um, where, you know, to get planning permission on the building now in London, you need a certain, either A, a certain percentage of the building needs to be a fit affordability criteria, or B, you need to have a nominations with the university. Um, so I think that, and, and, and as part of that, um, the GLA insists that you speak to the, the, the most local universities first, rather than sort of just going out to the universities you know and you have contacts with. So um, I do think that as part of that London plan, that there's going to be more buildings, more PBSA buildings sort of coming up in conjunction with universities. Uh, there's going to be sort of more of that co-managing element where you perhaps have, you know, your PBSA, you, you know, you have your management team in the property looking after it. You might look after the sort of the facilities, uh, you know, the building, uh, how, how everything works in, inside, you know, sort of the utilities, everything like that. And then you have the university team working in conjunction with your student experience, sort of delivering, you know, their sort of really tailored uh, product to, to their own students. So I think uh, it's going to be a bit of an amalgamation over the next few years of, of, of different models. But I sort of certainly see probably a bit of a growth in the hybrid model where PBSAs and universities are working together to deliver one, you know, a great product, a safe, secure you know, has, you know, sort of all, everything that the students need is in a good location. You know, the, the private providers often have the funds to, to forward fund those buildings and build them. Um, and then you've got the universities that, that, you know, have really clear ideas about what they want for the student experience. And, you know, they'll be working, you know, they'll have their own people working with us in conjunction to deliver that student experience. I think that with the London plan, as, as it is, I think we're going to certainly see more of that. And moving on to uh, the hot topic at the moment, particularly for investors around ESG. Yeah. So um, how are you guys at Fresh sort of approaching this, both from an investor point of view, meeting their requirements, but also from a customer point of view? Probably sort of two parts of that. And I'd sort of probably focus a bit more on the second part, but the first part around the investors is that I think that over the next sort of three, five, ten years, we're going to see um, a lot of money, you know, a lot of capital expenditure spent on improving building efficiency. Uh, so, you know, we, we're working with uh, some of our investors at the moment. Um, we've done, you know, sort of really intrusive building surveys, uh, looking at how you know, how we can improve metering in the building, you know, replacing boilers with sort of heat pumps and things like that, and looking at sort of long-term savings. So, you know, big big capital spend, but, you know, good in return on investment over the next 10 years. We've probably seen a bit of that in the past with, the, you know, small things like changes from light, you know, halogen light bulbs to, you know, LEDs and stuff. But I think um, investors are sort of really focused now on how they can deliver you know, sort of savings. And I think that people, especially with these sort of energy price rises, are not scared now to put the capital in to, you know, change boilers and put solar panels on and things like that. I mean, the, the student side is definitely the more interesting side um, because there, there's loads of things that, um, you, you know, we can do and um, there's loads of things we're doing as well. And 
I think with um, you know sort of the social government government side, it's all about sort of um, marginal gains, incremental gains. You know, you, if you can make a, a small change and make lots of small changes, then you're going to make a big change in the end. Um, you know, we're you know looking at you know the, the most basic stuff uh so from your welcome packs is is everything in your welcome packs sustainable so um you know we we've done stuff like uh bamboo toothbrushes uh and you know this year um fresh gave uh, every resident a pair of fresh socks which are pretty cool uh they're sort of branded but, but they're you know they're made from sustainable sources so it's sort of educating students on what is and what isn't staying sustainable we're working with um Fresh have just started working with a charity called Reuse uh, and um, probably had lots of sort of ad hoc programs in the past. We see, you know, British Heart Foundation boxes in uh, accommodations at the end of the year and, you know, charities will come and pick stuff up. Uh, when, I, when I went to IQ, we used uh, St Vincent de Paul's in London. Uh, but I think that there's been much more focus now on institutional change where you have a, a partner for the whole company. Uh, so you know we, we're using sort of a charity that 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 sort of align to align to all of the fresh properties, and you know that they'll come around and pick stuff up, and it's not just um, you know the, the normal stuff that the charities want to pick up, but they'll they'll come and pick stuff up to to re you, you know sort of uh, stuff like you see on the repair shop, you know they'll be like repairing stuff and, and giving it to different charities and stuff like that. Um, you know we're having. Uh, electric charger points put in some of the properties. You know, in London, we're working with one of the HE providers to put uh, electric charger points in for scooters, like the e-scooters you get, uh, which is, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, you know, right down to the really simple stuff you can do, um, you know, like the, and the stuff that sort of everyone really does, uh, you know, sort of programs on, you know, turning your lights off, turning your heating off, you know, making sure that people know when they go out of their rooms that it's, it's best to turn, turn stuff off. So, there's tons of stuff going on and i think that with esg being such a hot topic at the moment that, that's only going to grow and i think you know we work in the, the third party space and you know i think primarily people would have come to you to run their buildings a few years ago and you'd be talking to them about you know the the, the noi growth you could deliver and you know your safety and things like that and now you're talking to to clients about you know you talk to investors about um you know their their esg programs what, what they want to provide to their investors and, and how you can work with them to, to provide that so i think it's only going to be a space that grows um and you know we certainly certainly see we've seen some really good stuff i mean for one example that, that you know i pull off is uh we've got a, a property in brighton and we worked with um the local charity shop just just on the same road from us and um, we got them to donate loads of clothes, basically, like plain clothes. And the, the residents here, um, the residents, I mean, I'm here today, which is why I say here, but the residents, um, we provided like the stuff to decorate the clothes and to sort of, you know, jazz them up a bit. And then we did, uh, we gave them back to the shop and they did a pop-up shop on uh, London Road in Brighton with all the stuff that the students decorated and, and generated. I think, you know, it's like, it was a couple of hundred pounds uh, of uh, income for the charity shops and you know just small things like that which is is one you know it's, it's great for your social program it's great for your social media as well you, you get those images up uh you know it sells your property to people coming in but also you know it really satisfies um 
investors ESG programs as well and what, what they want to do and you know what what the output that they want so there's, there's tons of stuff that, that I think we're going to see in the future I, I really like the idea of the fresh socks um, yeah. particularly being sustainable I think uh, uh, I think it's nice to see somebody doing something different um, slight pivot now away from from PBSA even though I could talk to you about PBSA all afternoon I think um so talking more about culture and change in you and and, you know if you had to say what your values were what what would you say yeah I mean it's it's a it's a good question actually um I would probably say um I'm a a bit of a stoic uh I'm I'm really interested in uh stoicism and, and that sort of branch of philosophy mainly from uh you know, I think I read Meditations by Mark Aurelius at university, and uh, it sort of had sort of quite a profound impact on me. So, you know, the, the, the four the, the four pillars of Stoicism are, you know, wisdom, justice, courage, and, and moderation or temperance. Uh, so, I'd like to think that you know, when I make decisions, that, that that's sort of how I'm making decisions, and the way I, you know. It, a lot of people model themselves on their values and you might not know you're doing it, uh, but, but that, that's sort of the way it is, I think. Um, so yeah, really, really interested in stoicism. Um, I think that, that there's so much negativity in the world. Um, and, you know, I think that when you look at what you can affect and, and how you can affect it, then you can probably pull away a lot of negativity. Uh, and you you can then focus on how you can like one better yourself and how get positive you, you know how you can get positive outcomes. Certainly, you know conversations I have with my team, uh, you know when people you know naturally people get overwhelmed with things or worry about things. It's, I always sort of think, well, what what can you affect? Like if, if you take a step back, look at a problem, and look at how you can affect it and what what parts of it you can affect and. You just do your best with that, uh, and, and then, then I think as long as you've done that, and as long as you've like literally done the best you can on that, then you, you know, then that's a that's a good position to be in, and you can you can look at that problem. Then it, you might not have got the outcome you wanted, but if you've done everything you could, you can then be positive about it. Um, so that that's certainly I, I would say that's how I sort of base. But they're my values really. That that's sort of how I base base of um attacking problems with those values okay so leads me on to uh, what we always finish with quick fire round so if you could change one thing about the world what would it be i would um definitely try and get people to be a bit more savvy about sort of social media and opinions uh, and, and things like that um, you know, I'm a great believer in the marketplace of ideas. And when I was younger, I wrote a few sort of blogs on it and things like that. But um, I think that, that the marketplace of ideas, that the whole idea of that has been corrupted um, and that social media is, is great and it's brilliant for, you know, opinions, you know, staying hot on issues and, you know, being in contact with your old friends and things like that. But I think it's used so irresponsibly sometimes when we look at, you know, it doesn't matter what your politics are, but you look at how, 
you know, you look at places like America with Donald Trump coming into power, I, I should think, oh my, you know, how does that even happen? Um, you know, I, I saw, I made a decision a couple of years ago so during, um, you know, Brexit, actually. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's fine to have whatever opinion you want on Brexit, but it's just so much negativity, you know, and, and I just read stuff on social media and you just think, oh my God, guys, like, how do you, how do you come up with this opinion? Like people just see stuff on social media and they just think it's gospel. Uh, you know, it's all, all about critical thinking. And I think the power of social media is eroding people's ability to think critically about big issues. And I would like there to be a bit more understanding of that and, and regulation, if there is such a regulation. Um, and I think that there would then be a lot less negativity in the world and people would look at things with a bit more of a positive outlook because, you know, human beings naturally, uh, I think that human beings tend to look at things with a, you know, a lot of people look at things with a sort of half, half glass, glass empty attitude. And if there's lots of, you know, negative stuff on social media and that's what you're seeing all day on your phone and your computer, then it, people end up thinking more with that half glass empty attitude. And, you know, I think as, as, as human beings, um, you know, we work hard and th there's no point in, in working hard unless you're going to sort of enjoy your life and, and do do positive things. And I think if you're, you're looking at sort of all that negativity all the time, then, you know, how do you, how do you, how are you positive and how do you live with that positive mindset? So lots of, uh, it's, it's a really interesting topic, actually. Okay. And what advice would you give to someone who wants to change their direction but doesn't know where to start? I would say, I would say, write everything down: the pros and the cons uh, of what you want to do and why, and then just look at the pros. Because if you're going to look at the cons, then you're never going to make that change. Um, and you know, ch change is like scary, isn't it? You know, everything. It doesn't have to be, you know, your work. You know, if you're thinking about moving house or moving to a new town, or um, you know, sort of personal change. You know, you know, do do you want kids or not? Or are you going to get married? But you know, the, the one we always talk about is, is work, and everything sort of seems to come back to that because you, you spend so much time time doing it, I guess. But um, if you look at the negatives all the time and, and what could happen and, and how things could go wrong then you're never going to make that change and you're, you're probably going to be stuck doing something that you don't want to do and you know you, you might end up being sort of bitter and resent that um and you know i, I would say i'd say read meditations by marcus aurelius and uh, look at what you can affect and how you can affect it and, and don't be scared to, to make that jump Okay, so last one in the quick fire round. What is going to be your next big change? Um, so by the time this podcast goes out, uh, if it goes out, um, I'm, I'm sort of being promoted uh, fresh. Uh, so I'm taking on the role of head of divisional operations uh, from April the 1st. Uh, so I think that is going to be, um, you know, it's, it's going to be different for me. Uh, you know, I've always worked in sort of, well, not always worked in central operations, but I've worked in central operations now for sort of quite a few years. And um, it's going to be a bit of a, 
it's going to be a change in the. I'll be a little bit removed from the day to day, uh, and you know the day to day is something that I, I love. Uh, you know, I love working with my teams and my people, and all your best results come from like having good people and molding them and working with them. So. Um, be a bit more of a, a move to a bit more of a strategic role. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. I think it's going to take up a lot of my time uh, over the next, uh, you know, year or two. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's one where I, I've just got a clear answer just because of work circumstances at the moment. Right. And last question. Who would you recommend to be my next guest on Know Your Shift? Oh, this, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, I've been thinking about. Um, I think, um, you know, a good guest would be a, a guy that I used to work with uh, who's got a really interesting outlook on life. Called, uh, it's a guy called Stephen Finch. Uh, right. And, you know, it's lots of different, um, you know, sort of careers and backgrounds, uh, but really hot on some interesting topics as well. So, you know, stuff you know, build, building safety and things like that, you know, really, we've got some really interesting takes on that. So, so he'd be good. Um, you know, if, if you, if you wanted to look at talking to someone from an HE background, um, you know, um, I, th I know everyone in student accommodation knows Nigel, uh, Nigel Lindo, uh, um, UEA, uh, yeah, um, UAL, uh, you know, top, top guy, really interesting takes on the HE, HE market. Uh, if, if you wanted to look at someone who didn't work in property at all, got a good friend called Chris Wall. He works in sort of technology, and he sort of works with um, sort of government agencies on changing the technology that they're using and, and sort of guiding people through those processes. So uh, you know, got got a few people you, you could uh, reach out to. Yeah, thanks. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely um, tag them in the post and uh, and see if we can get them on the on future episodes. Um, Eddie, thanks for um, talking to me on Know Your Shift. Uh, it's been a really enjoyable conversation. I think, um, you know, uh, alongside Fatty recommending you to come on the podcast, you were someone I wanted to talk to because, you know, your passion for the sector really comes across, um, you know, and someone that's involved in the detail and is really knowledgeable both about you know the he sector and and also pbsa and uh we managed to talk a little bit about hospitality perhaps uh perhaps we could do another one that i could talk about that for a long time as well and and we managed to squeeze in some stoicism as well so uh so thanks for joining me on the podcast uh really enjoyed it thanks gareth it's uh great to be on